Good morning, everybody. Man, I just want to say thank you, first of all. Uh, I share that video in a lot of places, but how cool it is to say thank you for joining us for these last 10 years since, uh, since we were sent out by CCC. So we're just really grateful to this church and the support it's been and the encouragement it's been along the way. And I do remember that phone call, Pastor Mark. Um, I could feel your smile coming through <laughs> the phone. I was like, wow, this guy has some. And we had already closed our search and we were starting our interview process. And I was like, man, there's a smile on the end of this phone that we need to hear. So super grateful for Mark and, and the way he's led and served this church in these years. Um, we have had a lot of, I've had a lot of leaders in my life that I can look back at. And, and we're in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 uh, today. So you can open your Bibles there and find your way to this passage. But this passage talks about our relationship or how we understand or think about our leaders. And the very first thing it's going to say is remember your leaders. And, and as I look back at my life, um, there, were, there were leaders who marked my life, right? And I think of even my childhood, there was one in particular. I was raised in kind of a rigid environment. I don't know, some of you may have been raised in an environment like that, a little bit on the legalistic side or just very rigid side. And there was one guy who is in the middle of that, um, one of my friend's dads, and he was a man full of grace. And he just stood out in my life as just this kind person who is interested in us kids as we ran around with various shenanigans. And um, it just stood out to me. And, and then my whole life I knew him, and he was just faithful at speaking gracious words of God um, in our lives and encouraging us. And even in our teenage years, he would send us out with a, a word of wisdom or a proverb or a verse or just a kind word. And that just stuck with me. And over the years, there are other people that added to that, right? There were, there were pastors who, who were faithful at teaching God's word, and I just learned that from them. And there were other people who I just saw their marriage. I thought, man, I want a marriage like that. And I saw people who, men of God, who um, led in, in how we should treat our families and our kids. And I, I grew from that. And then I had other people teach me God's word. And, and, and your life ends up being shaped in lots of different ways. And, and this passage starts in with this very statement. In fact, our passage gives us six um, direct instructions of how we should be thinking about our leaders. So we're going to capture those all first. They start at the beginning of our passage and at the end. We're going to lump them all together, and then we'll move on to the rest of the passage. So starting in chapter 13, verse 7, this is what he says. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way and imitate their faith. This is verse 3. First of all, remember the leaders that spoke to you, and it's right for us to do that, to think back through the people that God put in your life who spoke God's word to you. And, and here in Hebrews and, and the various times that he references the leaders in the church, he doesn't always differentiate what type of leader or what their title was. He was more interested in their function in their life. So he says those who spoke the word to you, he does that three other times in the book. He talks about those who are speaking and teaching God's word to you. Um, and so I, I don't know about you, like maybe you can remember those. And it is right for us to honor those who invested into our lives and spoke God's word to us. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And again, not particularly interested in their title, well, because they're pastor or because they're deacon or because they're missionary. Because It's because of they spoke, they labored, they worked hard, they taught God's word to you. And it's good and right that we would esteem these people and, and very highly in love, it says in, in Thessalonians. The second instruction that we have is that we would consider the outcome of their way of life. And I just love to see uh, men of God who were faithful their whole life. Is that not just a, a blessing to see that? Um, this last year, one of my mentors passed away uh, in his late in life. 
taught God's word his whole career and uh, was just faithful as a husband, as a father, as a Bible teacher, faithful to the Lord, and passed away. And I just thought, that's just what I want. I want to be faithful to the end, right? I want to emulate that type of lifestyle. And, and wherever I was, when I heard that Dr. Julian had passed away, just in my heart, I just felt this deep sense of, of sadness that he had passed, but just also just this, this sense of weight in my life that, man, I want I want to be like that. I want to be like that guy. Right? And be, consider the outcome of their weights. And, and in verse 7, it does say that. Imitate their faith. And I don't think that's a mechanical copying, but more of like an emulating. It's where um, we would see the strengths that they have, and we would want to, we would want to be like that. And, and honestly, you guys, I don't know if you've had this experience or not, but I haven't found like, an Apostle Paul that has just every aspect of his life is the most exemplary thing. Like, I, I don't know if you've looked for a mentor like that. And what I've found is, like, people have maybe pockets of things that you're like, wow, that's this guy, his teaching, that's what I want. I want, he's just faithful to the Word of God. I want that in my life. You see someone else in their joy. They're just joy in the Lord. Uh, and you're like, man, I want this joy in my life. And someone else is just faith. They just have faith. They see impossibilities, and they're like, well, God's with us. Let's try it. You know? And you're like, I want that in my life. So, so maybe you don't find, try to find one person that just has everything all put together. <laughs> we might be disappointed if that were the case, but we emulate and imitate these aspects of God's grace in their life. And it might be their parenting or their passion for the lost or for the world or for the word or for the church or disciplines of prayer or study or meditation or whatever it might be, and we, we might learn from those different things. Well, it seems like the author shifts his thought, and he, he runs to a, a few different thoughts, but at, he wraps it back up at the end of our section in verse 17. So let's just skip down there for now, um, where he circles back to this idea in verse 17, because he says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So verse 7, did you see that? Oh, obey your leaders. Oh, man. 2023, the state of the church in America, or the world for that matter, that's not a concept that's probably embraced obey anyone, really, right? I determine my truth and what God is doing in my life as an individual. And if I don't like what so-and-so says, I bounce. I'm out. I leave. I find someone else that I like better what they're saying. This is, this is a challenging statement. I think this is a, culturally, this is a challenging statement. Obey your leaders. Now, obviously, if your leaders are doing something that's against God's word, I don't think that this would be all-inclusive forever and always bound to that. But, like, if they're leading you in God's word, the challenge is to us and to our hearts is obey your leaders. And if they, if they show you the error of maybe doctrine that you're teaching that's against God's word, the call is to obey them. And if they were to show you the course of your life and how it's straying from God's principles, the call is for you to obey them, right? And if, if they were to show you a, a wrong emphasis in, in a ministry that's just not leading the church in the right direction, the call would be to obey them. And if they show you um, elements of your behavior that are against God's word, then the call would be to obey them. I don't think that's a blind obedience, but an obedience when it's in submission to God's word. Um, here's the other statement, submit to your leaders. Oh, man, again, like, we, we were born, our country was born a little bit independent. We like that about ourselves as Americans, don't we? And really, like, our culture often follows our history, and our history was we landed, and it was like, dominate or die. Like, that was kind of it. Build forts, conquer, or you're, go you're all going to die. And half of them did die. So they're like high gear. And we've just always been this way. This, 
entrepreneurial development type spirit and it's led to amazing things as a nation like what we've accomplished as a nation is pretty phenomenal um however internally some of that stuff seeps in a little bit we don't we don't want to be told anything other than what i'm feeling and what i want and i'm going to go out and get it and it's my way right away at anybody remember the ad no your way right away at I am old, I am old, I am old. Now, when I talk with young adults, I just assume I'm old. Like, come on now. At Burger King, nobody remembers Burger King? One hand, thank you, thank you. Everybody over 40 should have known that. But All right, I got to move on from that. I'm stuck in my head thinking how out of date I am. But all right, we got to keep moving. Have it your way. I'll keep moving. All right. <laughs> Why, now, why would we, why would we submit? The, the text does give us a rationale for that. Did you catch that? He says, obey your leaders, submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. That's, that's why you would want to do this, is that they are looking out for your souls and your best interests spiritually. Um, in fact, let's, let's go a little further. The, the way that they're keeping watch of your soul, as one who must give an account, they will have to give an account for your soul. So they better pray and have the weight of that in their day to day. That's the reason why. Like, so if we, we understand there's like a heaviness to their leading of a church. Um, it, by the way, there's a few little side statements we just almost have to acknowledge. Like this is probably one of the best rationales for church membership that I can think of. Um, we, we live in a world where, I mean, in first century, when the original audience, it was just like, who is the church? Well, as all the believers in this town was the church. Who's in? Well, all of us who profess faith. We're all there. Who do we give an account for as, as elders? All the people, all the believers, right? And as Christianity has grown and spread, we don't all fit in this building, and we have different pockets here and there. How do we know? Do we just give an account for all believers everywhere or anyone who just wandered in off the streets? And this, I know membership's a little bit American, and it's kind of our system. It's not necessarily in the Bible, but the rationale is here, the principles here, that Elders need to know who they're given an account for and who they need to be faithful to watch over their souls. It's just, it's just a way of, of getting out of our American sort of like smorgasbord, we'll just appear wherever we want to, kind of that consumerism, and it moves it into, no, this is a, this is a spiritual family, and our leaders have oversight, and they're going to stand before God for that. And it's a serious, serious aspect. Gives one more statement. He says, um, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then Joy tried to think, like, okay, what's it mean to do this with groaning or with joy? Like, what would make it joyful to be your pastor? And what would make it, like, ugh, groaning to be your pastor? Um, Here's one more passage that describes that elder pastor role. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. It says, exhort the elders among you, and this is what he ends up describing them. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Uh, that's the picture. It's the imagery. It's like, it's like, um, it's like uh, you have a flock that you're caring for, and you want to take them to places where they're nourished and fed God's word and protected from false doctrine and for wrong thinking and wrong behavior and and that's what a shepherd is doing like he's guiding um, a flock uh, he says it says also first Peter 5 2 or once also goes on to say exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. That ties in really well with our passage. It says we're to imitate their life, and the instruction to them is to be an example and worth imitating. 
right? So that's, that's the image of what a shepherd is like, and that's the image of what our relationship should be like. So what would make it a joy? Uh, I served here about 10 years on staff, and I've served 10 years with the mission, and um, I would say that the number one thing that would bring me joy, and your pastors, I can say this with confidence, I know their answer, is for you to walk with the Lord, for you to prioritize your faith. There's nothing that's going to make your pastor more happy than if you take ownership and prioritize your spiritual well-being. That will bring them joy. To have a soft heart to God's word. So when they preach, it's not about their delivery and it's not about their jokes and their intonation or their performance, but it's you receiving God's word and seeing what does God want to speak to me. Right? That would bring them joy. Um, or taking initiative in serving the church. Right? That you would blow our cultural norms of 80-20 rules in the church. Have you heard of that? Like 80% 80, 80 of the work is done by 20% of the members. Something like that. That's a, that's a normal church number. People talk about that. But if we could blow that out of the water and say that we are ministers of God's we are ministers. All of us are. Like, we are all part of this holy priesthood. We're all involved in serving each other. If we all took that level of ownership, your it would bring joy to your pastors. It would bring them joy. Or if you led in your home and didn't think that, oh, I'll just bring my kids to church and, and, and they'll teach them, you know. But you, in your own home, thought, no, I'm going to lead my, my family in God's word. Or pursuing unity. And not being factious when you disagree. Uh, praying for you, leaders. Encouraging them. Being considerate of, of his load and his family and, and his limitations even. And making sure their needs are met. These are all things, I, they're not all in this passage, but I'm imagining some of them are from other passages. Like making sure their needs are met. That's from 2 Timothy 5, 17. It says that, that we should, like it is good and right for us as a church to make sure that they are well compensated, even, even giving double honor, like making sure financially we're not putting burden on our pastors where they're stressed out about finances. It's no advantage to us as a congregation to have a pastor who's having to moonlight a second job and taken away from shepherding and caring and preparing God's word. There's no advantage to us in that, right? Um, well, what are some things that would cause groaning? Well, I think the biggest thing is indifference. Just like, don't care. Come, sit, walk out, unchanged, unfazed, uninvolved, disconnected. You know another one? Easily offended. Like someone is just, just easily offended. Like, man, i got to watch out. Say the wrong thing. This person's going to take it the wrong way. And then it's like, you have to... Couch everything you say just in case you don't offend people and then creates drama uh, or armchair criticism. It's where people sit back in the comforts of their own chair and fire out criticisms after every Sunday sermon maybe. <laughs> That's easy to do. And it just it breeds discontent. Or being factious when you disagree meaning like I disagree and therefore I'm going to go and try to get people to agree with me against whatever. It's not that you can't not agree. It's not that you can't have other opinions. But you would, like with honor, like an honorable person, talk to him say like, man, I, I understand this passage to mean this. Like can we have a conversation about it? Or like why are you making this decision? I don't, I don't think I agree with that. Can we talk about that? There's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not like we're blindly just going to follow, but there's a difference between that and just creating a little revolution. If I get enough people on my team, I'll be able to strong arm them into changing and get it the way I want it. Do you see the difference in that? That would be, make your pastors lead through groaning. Um, faithless is another one, right? Like just, yeah, that's great, but I don't think it's going to happen. I don't, I don't know, like if a pastor is leading us some direction, you're like, ah, that'll never happen. And just lacking the faith to follow a vision, that would be, that would be groaning. All right, well, 
let's move on in the passage then, back to chapter 13, verse 7. Those are six things that we are encouraged to do. We remember them, we consider the outcome of their life, and we imitate their faith, and we obey, and we submit to our leaders, um, and we make it a joy, right? Uh, and the outcome of their faith, you guys, this is, a, this is a reality too. As we move into this next point, we'll see, you will see this contrasting statement. Because the truth and reality is there are pastors who bomb out or flake out or burn out. Are there not? Are there not people who taught God's word whose lives went sideways? I have a little section on my bookshelf for heretics that I once read their books and now I had to move them out of that category into the heretic category. <laughs> it's, that's a sad thing, actually. Because I have, I have a little list here, down here in the low right corner <laughs> of my bookshelves of, of guys who I read and I learned from and then they were unfaithful or completely left the faith or flaked out and got involved in a sinful lifestyle. Right? I have a little section of books like that. And here's verse 8. Let's contrast it with verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I love that statement. Like, um, we don't want to have a person, a human, a man as the defining line of our faith. Like, we're not putting all of our confidence in a person. We absolutely have to put in Christ, right? This is, this, is, um, this is where we put our confidence that he is the same. He's unchanging. He doesn't, he won't bomb out. He won't um, fail. He won't flake out. So let's be careful not to idolize people as we go in that. That would be falling into the other extreme, um, this is what he's saying. Is it's like Christ is the one who we, the example that we need to bank on. Um, so the, look at this, this passage then, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it's good for your heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, hold on. What, how did food get in here? It's a little bit funny. But here's the thing. Is that, like, leaders come and go, and some of them are good, and some of them are great, and some flake and some fail. Our hope isn't in a person. But there's also um, all kinds of messages that are out there that easily could lead people astray. And he's saying, we're not going to be led astray by that. And then he probably dips into one that was for in their time period that they were struggling with, right? So he says, it's good for us to be strengthened by grace and not, um, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. All right, so there's a few possibilities of what was going on in their time period. The most obvious one is probably people who grew up in the Jewish system and they had all these food laws, right? About don't eat these things and do eat these things and, and all these rituals associated with foods and washing of hands and, and washing of pots and ceremonially clean things and what's not. And if you grew up in that, it's really hard to leave it. It's really, really hard to leave it. Like we just get comfortable with certain practices and all of a sudden, like we can eat bacon? Are you sure? Like, are you sure we can eat bacon? Because, I don't know, that seems strange. So it could be that there were some who, there's just still that pull toward those religious activities. In fact, there were some people who had left Judaism, had become Christians, but they were still practicing the food laws. So there might be some people who were very devoted to keeping of all these regulations left over from Judaism, and they felt like it benefited their soul. And he's like, man, they were devoted to it, but it really didn't help them. It made them feel good, but actually didn't strengthen them. It's better if you're strengthened by grace, not by rituals. 
There are a couple of other groups, and I'm not sure if that's who they're talking about, but there are other couple little cults who sprung up around that area who had some sort of food regulations as well. I don't know that we need to dive into it, and I'm not sure that we can fully know which group they're specifically had issues with, but I think we can camp and understand this. There were people who were feeling really spiritual by the things they were doing, and it really didn't benefit them all that much. At the end of the day, I think we can, we can land on that. And there, these were not the only people who had to deal with that. In 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, it says this, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Or Colossians 2.20, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, um, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. So these things seemed religious. They seem spiritual, but they're sort of a man-made religion, or, yeah, man-made religion, or an asceticism, or even severity of the body, but it didn't really benefit their soul. And here you go, guys, is that sometimes it's probably not food sacrificed to idols and it's probably not Jewish regulations, but there are some things that we do that make us feel spiritual. Like, think about this in your life just a little bit. Like, what makes you feel spiritual? Sometimes it's a lot of external things like going to church. Man, I feel bad. I haven't been to church in a little while. You start to feel... I don't mean like I miss gathering with God's believers, but like I feel good if I go, I don't feel good if I, or, or our, even our devotional time. These are good things. But like, man, I'm not real spiritual because I missed my devos three days this week or something like that. Or um, it can be like even our own performance in our own holiness. I really feel unspiritual because I sinned too many times this week as opposed to another time where I sinned less. We start to feel a sense of security based on our performance. Here's things like, it's good for your heart to be strengthened, not by your performance, but by grace. And grace is God's unmerited favor on you. It's not because you got to church so regularly. Oh, now I'll, I'll, I'll confer my grace on you. It's not because you just, you were a little extra sinless this week. I, grace on you. It's not, God's not smiling on you because you performed well. And then like grumpy at you if you didn't perform well. But sometimes we act as if that's all I need is just to be a little less sinful. And then I'm going to be closer to God. Like, just stop and think with me a little bit. Because maybe this is the statement that you need to hear. It's good for your heart to be strengthened by grace. That God looked at you and poured his favor on you. Not because you were so good or so clean or just a little bit better than everyone else. Unmerited. Unmerited smiles he's looking at you. That's, that's what grace is. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. So let me ask you a few things. Do these things make you feel spiritual? Just to self-diagnose. Now, you're having to look at your own heart. I don't, I don't know you, and I don't know what's going on in your heart, but would you put a higher value on church rituals or on biblical principles? Or, here's one. Would you elevate to moral status something that Scripture doesn't require? Uh, here's another. Do you compare yourself to others just all the time and maybe spend a bit of time watching other people's faults? It might be just revealing something in your heart. Maybe you feel just a little bit better about yourself because you're not as bad as that person. Or... You just feel pretty good about yourself when you have not screwed up too much. Or do we feel uncomfortable when the Bible isn't directly addressing every ethical decision? Because i got to make sure that I get every little thing right. 
And then there's just a fear if it doesn't say something specific. Or do you feel guilt about your failings that linger? And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about feeling a sense of um, wanting to change or godly sorrow. I'm talking about feeling guilt about things you've done in the past. Or, here's another one, you're surprised by your faults. Like, I can't believe I would do that. It's like, actually, <laughs> you're way worse than you think you are. But like, if we are just totally shocked and dismantled and fall apart when we discover one of our sins, or, or here's another one, when someone points it out in us and says, hey, I think that you are, what, no way, and you feel yourself getting all defensive because you've got to protect that image of being spiritual rather than actually being spiritual. Like we'd rather look spiritual than actually be spiritual. And something went wrong in your view of grace in there. Or if you just absolutely would never think of opening your heart and sharing your sin with somebody as we're told to in scriptures to confess our sins one to another. I don't mean like at that mic in front of everyone. I just mean with somebody getting real and, and talking with somebody about the things that have a grip on your life. All right, let's keep going here. It's good for us to be strengthened by grace, not by our religious performance. And now things get a little funnier, all right? I'm, it's, it gets, okay, let's just try it. Verse 10. We have an altar from those from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Okay. Um, Hebrews you guys have gotten used to searching back into probably Leviticus a number of times, right? Are we used to that? Okay, same thing here. We're, we're just hailing back to uh, Leviticus chapter 16, maybe around verse 27. And um, the, on the Day of Atonement, on the day where they were taking care of the sins of the people, they would take an animal, sacrifice a bull, and they would kill that animal, and they'd take the blood, went into the Holy of Holies, but not the whole animal. It was just the blood. And on, different than the other sacrifices, a lot of the other sacrifices, the priests and the family of priests would actually have a barbecue with that meat later, right? It just was a way of taking care of the priests. But the, on the Day of Atonement, that was not the case. The animal of that, um, that body of the animal was taken outside of town and burnt, it benefited nobody, right? It was just totally burnt up and consumed, and that was the end of it. So the author of Hebrews here likens that, and he says that um, Jesus was like that and that he was taken outside the city. And then he says, so, so this is what he says, like those who are maybe interested in Judaism and we no longer have that altar, he says, we have an altar. It's just not a physical altar that we see, it was like Jesus and his sacrificial death in our place is like our altar. And like the animal on the Day of Atonement that was taken outside the gate, Jesus was actually taken outside the gate as well and sacrificed outside of the city. In, in a sense, very literally, right? He was sacrificed. He died on the cross outside of town. Um, in another way, maybe figuratively, um, he was ostracized and pushed outside of that gate, right? He was outside of Jerusalem. He was outside the holy city. He died and was rejected and suffered outside the city that way. He was outside of Judaism. He was outside of their expectations and all of those things. And then look at verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. Therefore, Let's go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Oh, what a statement. Here we don't have a lasting city. 
And city's kind of a, uh, a metaphor, maybe, of all of the world system around us. And it's just it's fading away. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fade away. And we're looking, we're searching, we're leaning in towards a city that's lasting. So let's think about that just a little bit. We have in Christ the sacrifice. And then he says, here we don't have the city. We don't live for the city. And you did just learn this just at the end of chapter 12, the same concept already. So this is probably fresh in your mind. But this city is going to tell you things. It's going to be pressing them in your heart and mind. And you have to decide, which city do I live for? Like this city, uh, one of our chief mantras from this city in our culture, in our day and age, is, is hedonism, right? It's this love of pleasure. Do whatever makes you feel good. Holiness? Oh my goodness, that's so archaic. That's so overrated. Like, this city's going to make you feel stupid for wanting to be holy to the Lord. Um, this city, marital fidelity? Oh, come on. This city's going to try to make you feel like you are missing out. In fact, like that is, that is a term that has become commonplace, right? FOMO, fear of missing out. Like it's not necessarily diagnosable, but people understand that like you scroll and search this city because you're afraid they're just going to miss something funny or something novel or something interesting or something better than my current reality and go to a restaurant and watch people sit across the table from each other, missing out on the people in front of them and searching just in case they miss out on something else. Stop at a stoplight. We live in the city now. Stoplights everywhere, right? Every stoplight, almost every car, every day. When we pull up to a stoplight, everybody. Unbelievable. They cannot endure that 90 seconds without, like, checking. I'll feel it. Pull on me as well. Um, or wander lust, right? This, just this desire to see everything and do everything and arrange my time and my values and my schedule so that I don't miss out on anything. This is what pulls at our heart. Okay, so if it's not hedonism, it might be materialism. Like the lust and pursuit of wealth. Um, it's not what we need. It's like just a little more upgrade, just a little bit better, just to feel a little more comfortable or live a little bit longer or to have my already picture-perfect life just be a little more, a little more, a little more. And it's like, man, it's we, just the base level of our society is unbelievable. I think of this when I go in a kitchen, by the way. I look at our kitchen, I'm like, we've got a stove, which is amazing. It cooks things inside there and on top. Isn't that awesome? And it does it just by turning a dial. There's no fire being built. I don't have to carry anything in. It just happens. If that's not enough, up just a couple feet, there's another box that will totally heat everything up in seconds, right? Um, and if that's not enough, there's another little box just for the bread because I like it toasted just the way that I like it. Do we not? And that's not even fancy. It's a toaster, right? But like, We've just gotten used to, this is baseline, and then I want to cook some things outside. So I've got another whole little apparatus out there to, to do things outside with food. And that's just totally normal, totally normal. And it's like, I don't just have a knife. I've got a big knife and a sharp knife and a flat knife and a short knife and a paring knife. And it just, it just happens. That's just, our culture is just, that's normal. It's totally normal. But on top of that, it's like a little bit newer, a little bit better and a little bit more quality, and a little bit more, and it just can suck our life and our soul. And pretty soon all we know is we're just shuffling our stuff around, selling it and upgrading and selling and moving and putting in the attic, taking it down, garage selling and Facebook Marketplace and whatever. Like, it's just the life that we, like, am I the only person caught in that? Thank you, one person. All right. But the city around us will say, you need this. Like the thinking of our day will be like, well, yeah, your car is how old? Oh, it's time. 
or, you know, endless. And I don't want to get pharisaical and try to draw lines and say this is okay and that's not okay. And I'm not saying that even having wealth is wrong. It's not. There are people in the Bible who love the Lord. Friends of God who are fantastically wealthy. So please hear me when I say this. The problem isn't the wealth. The problem is when our hearts just led astray from the things of God. Abandoning our family, abandoning our church, abandoning our calling because, you know, and willing to make unethical decisions. Willing to not serve the Lord because, right? Those are the things we're talking about. And if it's not hedonism, and if it's not materialism, let's talk to maybe the up-and-coming generation and its self-expression. This is the city around us right now. It's like the highest good is what makes you feel alive. You do you. You be your true and authentic self-expression. Like you need to find what really is your most authentic. It doesn't matter about God's instructions. It doesn't matter what the scriptures say. The highest good is for you to feel self-authenticated. With no thought of a creator that we are his creation. No thought of what he has said is good or bad or right or wrong. No thought of that. I will determine. This, this is the thinking of our city. Right? This is the thinking of our day and age is that I determine what is truth. I'm the judge of that. And if it doesn't line up with my sensibilities, then I'm going to leave that. All right. Um, the call here in the passage is that we would join Christ, that we'd be seeking this other city that's permanent. Look at this back in... Back in the scriptures, verse 14, or verse 13, therefore let's go to him outside the camp. All right? Let's, let's be okay to leave that. Let's leave the thinking of hedonism and materialism and self-expression and be okay to join with Christ. And notice what it says, and bear the reproach he endured. Because the city around you will mock you for this. It's going to say you're stupid. You're missing out. It's going to try to make you feel that. And it's probably never going to be like some big court scenario where it's like you're on trial and you have to decide, do I follow Jesus, do I not? It's just going to be in the endless scrolling that pulls at your heart. And there will be just subtle moments where you make a decision that goes against God's word. It's where you switch a way of thinking or a perspective to follow what the thinking is of our day and age. So Jesus was literally ostracized and rejected outside of the camp and we're called to endure and bear the shame of that. And he says, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city but we seek a city that is to come. Like we live for eternity because this is just like this, you guys. And if we get suckered into this, if we get suckered into this and we abandon God's principles for this city thinking this is something, oh my goodness, we've got an eternity of the other one. We got suckered, blindsided and pulled in so subtly into the way of thinking around us and miss out on the city that is to come. And this is what he says then. In response to this, this is what he says, uh, verse 15, through him then. So it's connected, this thought, right? Did you see the then there? Uh, after, so if we're thinking like we're going to live for this city, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Um, oh my goodness, there is still an altar, and Christ is that altar, not like the Jewish one with, with bulls. And, and there is still a sacrifice, not the once and for all sacrifice that was for our sins, but now the sacrifice that we bring is a sacrifice of praise. It's an authentic heart expression of praise. That's what it says, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Verse 16, 
Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And verse 15 and 16, it doesn't come out as well in English, but they are connected with a conjunction that says, the fruit of lips, these are the sacrifices of praise to God. Number one is that we would be praising his name, and number two is that we don't neglect to do good and we share all that we have. And then he summarizes those two things by saying, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Because the worship that we bring isn't rote and it's not religious and it's not um, just this outward expression that we go through the motions. It actually comes from the heart and it involves the words that we say and the things that we do. All of that is a life of worship to God. Um, these are the sacrifices that God wants. And, and by the way, this isn't just a New Testament thing. This is, this is throughout the scripture where God didn't want just outward things, outward performance. This was something that God has planned all along. Romans 12, 1 says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Philippians 4, when Paul's looking back at his supporting church and thanking them for the the support, the financial support. He says, that, he says that it was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's how he describes their support of missionaries. Psalm 141.2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And if you're not careful, religion could devastate your soul. It was true for them. This is true for David as he wrote it, because he's going through the motions of sacrifice, but his heart has been far from God because of his sin. God wants your heart. He wants a true, authentic aspect of your heart. And when he occupies the throne of your heart, it's amazing. Your words will be a sacrifice of praise to him. Your actions, generosity, kindness, doing good, that won't be to try to please God. It will be because of our thanksgiving that we have. And we just offer it just out of gratitude this identity that we have in Christ. It'll just flow out. It won't be something we work up and try to, try to do. It'll be the outflowing and the outpouring of our hearts. So we're, we're to the end of our time. And I wanted to ask you this. I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And I'm not going to have anybody raise their hand or come forward or anything like that. But I'm going to ask you before you and God, just take a couple minutes and reflect a little bit on your own life. Because I'm, I'm leaving. It doesn't matter. Like, you don't have to, you know, there's, this is between you and God. And if you just skip out on this, then that's, that's, that's for you. But let me just invite you to reflect a little bit. I'm going to ask a couple questions. I'm just going to ask you to reflect. And if the Lord is nudging your heart, if the Spirit is showing you areas that you need to think about and explore, would you maybe write those down or start talking to the Lord about them already? Uh, the first one is, do you have a right view of your church leaders? Um, are there any wrong attitudes that you've been harboring? Do you have some church hurt, some disagreements, or having a hard time getting past and I ask you, don't just fade into the background or maybe leave. Could you deal with that? Could you go to your pastor and, and share that and take care of that? Don't just let it sit there and simmer. Have you accidentally let your heart be strengthened by your religious performance and not God's grace? Maybe you need to take a new look at grace and remember these things. Or maybe it's more dramatic than that even. Maybe you've been living for the wrong city. The values 
of the world around you have influenced your thinking and your perspective and your motivations and what you spend your time on, then maybe God is nudging you to be pressing towards a city that is to come and even maybe bearing the reproach of being ostracized by our own society because of that. I'm not sure what the Lord is calling you to do, but Christian, would you please follow what the Lord is teaching you through, your, through his word? I'm going to pray for you, and Pastor Mark's going to come up, and um, I would say we have, we have prayer cards, new prayer cards out in the lobby, uh, in the back, on the left there on the counter, and just kind of an overview brochure of our, of our ministry um, through Ethnos 360 of training church planners. I, I, would add, I, would I would love, I would consider an honor if every family uh, household here would take a prayer card and, and pray for us as we train uh, missionaries. And if you don't receive our, our newsletter, we only send it out every five or six times a year. Uh, would you would you want to follow along and join in praying? Like we always feel like we're on the bleeding edge of our capabilities. <laughs> it's just regular that we're like, Lord, please, please give us some wisdom here. And we just would love to have your prayer um, for us. So if you would if you'd take one of those, a, a brochure and a prayer card, we would just love that. So let me pray for you though. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your spirit that does work. Would he now be impressing on our hearts, comforting those who have just been following you, Lord? Would you comfort them that it was worthwhile, that it was worth it, and confronting those who haven't been? We might be a faithful church to live according to your word. We pray this in Jesus.